Beehive Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Bees. Hey there, everybody. We're back. Another episode of the Beehive Sports Podcast. Hope everybody had a great weekend. It was beautiful out. I enjoyed mine. Golf 27 holes on Saturday. Followed that up with some cold beers at Bent Run on the patio, which I really enjoy sitting out there in the sun. It's a nice spot. Glad we got a outdoor drinking venue finally in this neck of the woods. Quite a bit to touch on today. Obviously, we have the fan rant. AFC East will be in the My Hive segment later on. Uh, we're going to get into some salary cap stuff. Just a few topics here in opening. I'm going to start it off with uh, something I saw the other day that I was unaware of. Of course, I don't really pay enough attention to the NBA to have noticed it. Been paying attention more for betting purposes, obviously. Been riding the Suns. Uh, that's going well. Even actually alternate pointed game four up to minus five and a half for some plus money. They covered. It was good. But what I saw was that, uh, you know, a while back, and I don't remember when it was, I think we talked about it on an episode. If we didn't, it was definitely posted on the Facebook page for a little debate. Uh, which is harder to win a Super Bowl versus an NBA championship? I think we did talk about it in an episode. But anyways, uh, this will be the first time since 1998 that an NBA Finals will be without the Lakers, the Warriors, the Spurs, or the Heat. Since 1998, one of those four teams represented either the East or the West. I guess it would be uh, Lakers, Warriors, Spurs represented the West, or Miami represented the East. But I think that that, I don't know, to me that goes for my argument because we talked about super teams. Of course, people will throw in the Patriots who are there, you know, however many times, 10 times, nine times, whatever it was, you know, over the last 20 years. But they did that with a salary cap. And I know what some of you are thinking, well, there is a salary cap in the NBA. Correct. However, it is called a soft salary cap. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. A few other things I just wanted to mention right off the get-go. Uh, Jason Kidd, I thought this was funny just because I can't stand the city of Portland. Uh, Jason Kidd withdraws from consideration for the head coaching job in Portland. He says it's because Damian Lillard called for his hiring. I personally think Jason Kidd just thinks Portland is a dumpster fire too as a city, not necessarily as an organization, not the trailblazers, but the actual city of Portland is such a pile of shit that I think Jason Kidd's like, nope, no thanks. Going to see what else is out there. So that was just something that, in my head, it was funny. Which a lot of things in my head are funny. So this also I found funny. D-Hop, DeAndre Hopkins, throws out a quote this week. Don't know if any of you guys saw this, but he uh, it was in regard to Julio going to the Titans for a second-round pick. And Hopkins, who's still bent out of shape that he was traded for less than a first, uh, he he thinks Julio should have garnered a first as well. He says, and it's a quote, I would like to see a first, I'm sorry, I would like to see a first round pick who could do what Julio and myself do. 
So one thing, obviously, everybody here knows I'm a Buffalo fan. I love Stefan Diggs. I've said this before. I liked him prior to him going to Buffalo. The fact that he's there now just was icing on the cake for me. Diggs, rare, in one interview, he talked about his time in Minnesota. I respect the hell out of him for that because I look at DeAndre Hopkins, who never quits talking about the Texans. DeAndre Hopkins is the mad ex-girlfriend who can't let go of the relationship, who refuses to give back the hoodie that she borrowed from her boyfriend. It's just crazy to me that this guy just will not shut up about Houston. You're allegedly in a better place. Now, they only won like four more games than Houston did last year. So how much better is it? It's four games better. Uh, the talent and everything's there. I don't, I'm still not sold on Kingsbury, but regardless, enjoy Arizona. Embrace what you have now. You have Kyler Murray. You have, you know, JJ Watt just came there too. You, Buda Baker. They have all these really talented players in Arizona. But Hopkins just cannot stop talking about the Texans, and it just drives me bananas. If I was, an Arizona fan, that is something that would truly bother me. If Diggs was doing this regarding Minnesota, it would just show me that his focus is not where he's at now. He did one interview on him, and then he put up some insane numbers last year. He had a great season. Hopkins had a good year, but he just doesn't shut up about Houston, and that I just can't wrap my head around that. So speaking of the first-round picks, as Hopkins stated, this is something that I wanted to get into and break down a little bit. We're going to do it quick because I got quite a bit to go over in the things that sting and, uh, you know, obviously sports history segment. So I'm going to buzz through this a little bit. But something that I've noticed, and this is something that I've openly bitched about to just about anybody who I talk sports with, is something that I think that's ruining NFL rosters and the ability to build a contending roster unless you have a bunch of guys who will, who are willing to take less money is when guaranteed money started getting built into contracts. So I did some research on this because I was curious as to when it started because this is what I've seen so far this season. If you look at the first-round picks – Contracts or projected contracts, some of them signed, not all of them have. But you have Trevor Lawrence, and these are guaranteed money. Okay. Trevor Lawrence, 36 million guaranteed. Wilson, 35 guaranteed. Kyle Pitts, 32 guaranteed. Uh, Chase, 30 million guaranteed. 30 million guaranteed or more for these top picks who have never played a snap in the NFL. You have no idea how their game is going to translate from college to the NFL, but now you are invested over 30 million over the next, you know, four years with the fifth year option, which if you break that down, it's not a ton, but if something happens, if, if they just totally don't pan out or something happens to them legally and you're, you're on the hook for this money for the life of that contract, it's guaranteed money. So there are a couple things, you know, that can void that. 
actually really only one, but we'll get to that in a little bit because I just, I've had a problem with this. So I had to figure out when did this start? Because I don't, guaranteed money is a relatively new phrase when it comes to the NFL and come to find out it's only about five years old. So it started in 2016 where they guaranteed the top 20 picks that their contracts would be fully guaranteed. That includes skill and injury. The MLB and the NBA have been doing this for years. The NFL did it in a way that it would be translated to a signing bonus. Your signing bonus was your guaranteed money. However, now that this guaranteed money is growing, and that's what everybody's looking for in their free agent contracts, you see the, that number in the signing bonus just climbing into you know, tens of millions of dollars. So the MLB, this is easy for them to do, right? Because they have no salary cap. The NBA actually has what's called a soft salary cap, whereas the NFL and the NHL have a hard salary cap. So in a hard salary cap, you're forbidden to go over. You cannot go over the set amount of salary cap. If you do, restructuring or releases or whatever it, whatever it takes must be done to bring you down under that number. Now, with the NBA and the soft salary cap, they're allowed to go over. That's permitted. Whatever the number is, you can go over it. But what it does is it reduces your privileges in free agency. So with this guaranteed money and these huge contracts that the NFL is dishing out now, this is just something that I've noticed, and I think anybody who's a fan of the sport has noticed, that these guys who are in a contract season tend to play better. They play harder. They care more because they know payday is is determining. You know, it's how much they get paid is going to be based on what they do in this year because that's what a lot of these NFL contracts come from. I mean, shit, look at uh, Matt Flynn or Nick Foles, who Nick Foles has the good run in the Super Bowl, gets a huge deal for Jacksonville, is there a year. Gets a deal with the Bears, he's still on the hook with the money there. And they have a a three-quarterback issue now where they drafted Justin Fields, who you know they want to play. They signed Andy Dalton, and then... To get rid of Nick Foles, they're going to be eating a bunch of money because they're not going to. I couldn't imagine they'll find a trade partner for the amount that he's getting paid right now. But I've seen crazier things, I suppose. But you look at some of the past huge and wasteful contracts: Kirk Cousins, Albert Hainsworth, Jimmy Garoppolo, David Johnson, Carson Wentz with his Eagles extension. He's gone. He's a Colt. It's apparent to me. I mean, I guess it's a it's a tough situation for a GM to be in. But this is where I think that guaranteed money has really screwed the sport. If contracts were more incentive based, you know, barring injury, which, like I said, we're going to get to, if they're more incentive based, I think you have a better product on the field from everybody. Because if you don't have you know, now, now they have these bonuses, which that's, you know, that's a thing. They still build those in, catch this much, make this much more, you know, uh, throw for this many yards, make this much more. So there's, there's certainly incentives built in still, 
But if they were incentive-based, I think you would just see a better product. Career-ending injury, obviously, that's something I get. However, for football, this is only on the field, which I think is bullshit. Uh, take the Broncos offensive lineman, for example, tore his Achilles working out. It was off-site, so you know they can void his deal. That's crazy to me because I understand these guys are your product and you want them to be healthy, not do things that could risk injury, but they're also humans. Miles Garrett wants to play pickup basketball. He should be able to do that. I understand the risk, but he's a human. He's an athlete. Big Ben wants to ride his motorcycle. Jason Pierre-Paul wants to light off fireworks. Maybe those last two are really bad examples, but you get the idea. So just a quick peek at some of the past draft picks in the first round, top five, who would now be in line for all this guaranteed money. 2015, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota. 2016, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz. 2017, Mitch Trubisky, Leonard Fournette, Corey Davis. 2018, Sam Darnold, who I'm an advocate for, we know, but if he would have got that guaranteed money from New York, which I'm sure he got some, it was it was there. 2018, so this started 2016, but still. Wave them, you eat the money. None of the mentioned players that I just listed are on their original team. So this is where I think the NFL contract system got broken. You veer away from incentives, you go more to guaranteed, and now you're in, you know, cap purgatory for how long just my thoughts on that we're going to take a break we will be back with this week in sports history like i said stick around afc east fan rant coming up in my hive see you in a few hi this is chris rossetti and i wanted to take a moment to tell you about our new website d9 and 10sports.com it's just like the old one but with the word and in the number 10 added to the end d9 and 10sports.com is your new home for district 9 and district 10 high school sports and we are doing all the things you have come to love from us plus much much more our goal is the same to cover every sport at every school in both d9 and d10 in a variety of ways including writing video and audio if you're a high school sports fan you need to check out d9 and 10sports.com today Let's take a look back at This Week in Sports History. This edition of This Week in Sports History is brought to you by D910sports.com, the home for all things District 9 and District 10 sports. If you love sports, this is the place to be. One thing I forgot to mention in opening, uh, a little bit of good news. I do believe Kylie Munch will be back with me next week. That is... Pending, he did not join a drug cartel. He has been in New Mexico for the the Spackler golf tournament that they do each year. I haven't heard from him. Little concerned. I'll probably call him after I record this segment, actually, just to make sure he's uh still, you know, a upstanding citizen, not a drug trafficker. Should probably look into that actually. 
So we're doing 10 facts this week. I think we did the story last week, right? Ray Caldwell, yep. Okay, so we're doing 10 facts. Like I said, going to buzz through them. I have a lot to go over in my hive uh, follow-up from last week's uh, Isai Toot story. So let's get to these facts first, though. So we're going to start off. Number one. 1907. The Yankees commit 11 errors in a 14-6 loss to the Tigers. I know what you guys are thinking. I'm, I'm probably sounding obsessed with the Yankees. A couple of things. I'm not, for one. For two, the Yankees have a, a very broad history. So when I'm looking up these facts, there's a lot of Yankees facts. And, and actually, I think there's even a couple more just in these top 10. So, And I like throwing out when they do things bad. Like you all know. So 11 airs, 14-6 loss to the Tiger. 11 airs is a lot. Must have been a fucking circus out there. Good. Keep it up, Yankees. Number two. 1913. Vince Lombardi is born in Brooklyn, New York. Everybody knows Vince Lombardi. Lombardi Trophy. Coach of the Packers. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's a big day when it comes to the NFL. The, the legend of Vince Lombardi is born 1913, Brooklyn, New York. Number three. 1952. Opening batsman Len Hutton becomes first professional cricketer to captain England in the tests. Again, cricket facts, irrelevant to all of you. I understand that. However, if you remember a few weeks ago, Kylie and I said we, neither of us know anything about cricket. So I've been doing some studying. I've actually learned quite a bit about cricket recently, watching some videos, figuring out the rules. It's pretty badass of a sport. I wouldn't mind getting the league going. Probably won't. Probably won't find one around here. But I'm going to have a segment sometime in the future where I explain how badass cricket is because it's actually a really, really cool game. It's almost like rundown uh, if you remember rundown or, or some people call it different things where, you know, you're playing uh, two bases and two guys with gloves, you have to make it to each side and, you know, get yourself in a pickle, but get out of it. You get points every base you touch. It's almost kind of like that, but with a game going on within that. So it's it's pretty cool. I promise. And I'll explain more on that another time. Number four. 1959, Charlie Sifford becomes the first black American to play in a U.S. golf open. So a little barrier breaking. Charlie Sifford. I wanted to throw that in there. That's a long time ago. And it's, you know, so the barriers have been broken for several years. That's good. Number five. 1973. Dave Winfield, pitcher for the Minnesota Gophers wins the College World Series Most Outstanding Player Award. In his two starts, he pitched 17 and a third innings, only allowing one run and striking out 29. To boot, he batted 467 in the College World Series. Bonus fact. This is something I didn't know, and in the realm of talking about, you know, the greatest athletes of all time and that kind of thing, I think Dave Winfield needs a little bit of respect headed his direction. Winfield was drafted by the San Diego Padres and NBA's Atlanta Hawks and the ABA's Utah Stars and 
the Minnesota Vikings. None of this I knew, so I had to throw the bonus fact in there because that's incredible. And, you know, in the in the world of talking about, like I said, the best athletes, the Bo Jacksons, the Dion's, the, the multi-sport athletes, I've never heard Dave Winfield mentioned in those conversations. It sure as hell sounds like he should be. Number six. 1975. Here's your uh, second Yankees fact. This is actually really a pretty good story. The New York Yankees decide to sponsor Army Day at their then-temporary home at Shea Stadium. A 21-gun salute was, was done using an Army cannon, shooting blanks. However, the soldiers placed it a little too close to the outfield wall, and the pressure from the blast blew a hole in one part of the wall and caught fire to another part of the, the outfield fence. CBS News anchor Walter Conkite noted that there was a double header played that day, with the scores being Yankees 6, Angels 4, Army 21, Fence 0. Number 7. 1991. Bulls, the Bulls beat the Lakers for the first of three straight NBA titles, MVP Michael Jordan's first finals appearance. Throw that in there because MJ's the GOAT. Everybody knows that. If you think otherwise... You don't pay attention. Number eight. 1999. This is a a by-request fact, however a worthy one at that. New York Mets coach Bobby Valentine ejected for arguing a catcher's interference call. Short time later, Valentine returned to the dugout wearing a hat, sunglasses, and a fake mustache made from eye black stickers. The broadcast crew quickly caught on to Valentine hiding in the tunnel, peeking his head out at the game. The MLB suspended him two games and fined him $5,000. Number nine. 2017. Pittsburgh Penguins defeat the Nashville Predators in the Stanley Cup Finals four games to two to become back-to-back champs. Always a difficult task, worthy of being mentioned. We're looking back of just a few years in history now, but I just wanted to note that one because, again, winning a championship is hard. Winning two, even harder. Number 10. 2019. David Ortiz is shot while visiting his native Dominican Republic. The initial report was that it was a paid hit but they had their own guy. Nine people were arrested in connection to the shooting. Sato David Fernandez, a friend of Ortiz, was the intended victim, and it was later found that Victor Hugo Gomez of the Gulf Cartel turned out to be the mastermind behind the whole thing. He was the cousin of Fernandez, and the drug trafficker believed that Fernandez had dimed him out to some Dominican Republican authorities. So he put a hit on him for $30,000 because he ratted. Unfortunately, the description fit the same as Ortiz, who actually is friends with Fernandez and was seated next to him at the bar where he was shot. So that wraps up 
the 10 facts. Like I said, we're going to motor through them. This edition of This Week in Sports History is brought to you by D9and10sports.com, the home for all things District 9 and 10 sports. If you love sports, this is the place to be. Going to take a break. Be back with the things that sting. Jones Pest Control, your hometown pest control company, servicing residential and commercial properties in Warren and surrounding areas since 2015. Sean and his crew will work tirelessly to keep your home or business free of insects to rodents and everything in between. Contact Jones Pest Control at 814-230-9548 and set up an appointment today. And remember, ants, spiders, bees, or mice, don't think twice. Call Jones Pest Control, 814-230-9548. It's now time for the things that sting. The worst stories in sports, according to Joe. This edition of the things that sting is brought to you by Jones Pest Control. Ants, spiders, bees, or mice, don't think twice. Call Jones Pest Control at 814-230-9548. That's 814-230-9548. So last week, we dove into a case where Virginia Tech Hokie linebacker Isai Toot was charged with second-degree murder for the killing of Jerry Paul Smith, who is an openly gay man from the Blacksburg, Virginia area, a very well-known and, according to his family, proud, openly gay uh, bartender in the area. Everybody had seemed like good things to say about him, did have a little bit of a criminal history. uh, But as far as his perception in the town, everybody seemed to, or I'm sorry, his reputation in the town, everybody seemed to enjoy Smith. So new details have emerged from this, uh, and it all started when a bail reduction hearing was requested by the defense. The hearing was granted, and uh, arguments were heard from both sides, including uh, specific details of the case. Some of them are, I'll just give you guys a heads up, uh, pretty graphic. I am going to get into them. It's an explicit show. This shit doesn't bother me, and I know that's different for other people. So the bail reduction hearing was heard. Uh, The judge, Randall Duncan, did grant bail at $75,000, which was posted with restrictions on the bail that E2 does not return to Montgomery County unless it's to meet with his attorney. And he's also placed on house arrest with an ankle monitor, released to his parents where he must stay uh, at his parents' residence. More than a dozen Hokie football players were in attendance in support of E2, as well as members of his family. Smith's family was in attendance as well. As I said, Judge Randall Duncan heard this case and prosecutor's statements where E2 told police that he went to Smith's downtown apartment to engage in sexual activity. E2 added that he thought he was meeting a woman that he named um, that he met on Tinder named Angie. Etude also added that this would have been their second meeting, the first meeting where they met for oral sex on April 10th. At the second meeting, after discovering that Angie was Smith, in fact a man, Etude punched and stomped Smith. Etude said when he left the apartment, he heard Smith bubbling and gurgling on the floor. Autopsy revealed that the bones in Smith's face were all broken, all of his teeth were knocked out, and that he suffered cranial fractures. As they they had said in the initial 
report that we discussed last week, blunt force trauma to the head was the cause of death. Defense attorney Jimmy Turk said that Smith had solicited E2 for sex. After the hearing, he elaborated on one of his points, saying, quote, Nobody deserves to die, but I don't mind saying, don't pretend you're something you're not. Don't target or lure anyone under that perception. That's just wrong. As you can imagine, that quote uh, really rattled the hornet's nest online. Uh, got a lot of people upset. So we'll get into reactions here in a minute. Uh, a little more about the hearing. E2 did testify at the bail hearing. Stating, quote, I'm trying to stay strong for the people that support me. I feel like I've let a lot of people down. I'm truly sorry for my actions, end quote. So there's no denying that E2 did this. I mean, he's he's admitted it to police. He admitted it in this hearing. Uh, the Where the shakeup's going to come is how the defense is going to handle uh, their argument. And we're going to get into some of that here in a minute after reactions because there are actually based off of uh, Jimmy Turk, the defense attorney's statement, it's clear that uh, the, the shock of the discovery is what they're going to use as a defense for what caused, you know, the, the violent reaction. So some of the reactions online or uh, I, you know, some of the sources I was reading, these are even emails in, uh, Jim Best, the regional coordinator of the Floyd chapter of PFLAG, one of the oldest and largest organizations for LBGTQ, said, quote, I hope this terrible incident will make more real the jeopardy and the work we still have to do to prevent the kind of knee-jerk, irrational behavior that we've grown with as males in our society. Samantha, Samantha Rosenthal assistant professor of history at Roanoke College and the co-founder of Southwestern Virginia's LGBTQ History Project, said, quote, regardless of the victim's gender identity, the, the comments by Etude's attorney demonstrate that the defense intends to use his transness as an issue in this case. There is unfortunately a long history of framing transgender people as inherently deceptive or untruthful about their identities. Later was also quoted, Rosenthal was also quoted saying, quote, trans people do not owe anyone disclosure about their upbringing, their anatomy, or their past. So some of the reactions there, as you can see, like I said, this case is, this is going to be, I think it's going to get more popular as it goes along the case, as far as its coverage and, uh, you know, people tuning in, paying attention to what's going on. Uh, Etude's next day in court is July 23rd. I'm not sure if that's formal arraignment or it didn't note what that hearing was for. That would be my guess. Cause I believe they said the, well, I, I thought that I had read that the prelim wasn't until September. Actually, I think the July 23rd next day in court is for the traffic violations that we had discussed too, that he got on the same day that the, uh, the murder took place. So what's going to work against E. Toots defense here is that earlier in 2021, the Virginia House and Senate approved a bill that bans what is commonly called gay panic or LGBTQ panic to be used as a defense. So what the panic defense is, is a criminal defendant uh, uses this 
that the discovery of the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity caused the defendant's violent reaction, potentially leading to a reduced charge or sentence. Now, the bill doesn't pro- prohibit the use of the defense. The defense counsel can still speak about that. Uh, you know, Etude, if he testifies, can say that that's what caused him to do what he did. But what the bill does is now the judge will have to instruct the jury not to let that affect their decisions. Obviously, a lot of people are calling for it to be charged as a hate crime. Federally, it could. They haven't said if this case is going to go federal yet. I wouldn't be surprised if it did. But in the state of Virginia... The only thing in legislation for hate crime is an enhancement statute, but those only the enhancement. So that would be for sentencing only applies to assault and battery, not murder. So they cannot charge a hate crime enhancement on the murder charge in the state of Virginia. So we're going to follow this one. For a while, because as I said, I do believe this case, given the circumstances and now the new information that's coming out, is going to, you know, garner a ton of media attention. Uh, Like I said, federally, if it goes federally, you know, they could charge the hate crime, but what they're going to have to look at are statements made by Etoot, whether it be past statements of, him being transphobic or, or uh, you know, anything he said to police that would lead them to believe that he was transphobic. I don't know that any of that's there. It hasn't come out if it is. I would think that prosecutors would have probably noted that in the bail reduction hearing because the point of the bail reduction hearing was to keep him in jail versus letting him out of jail. The information that... Judge Duncan received uh, led him to believe that E2 is not a threat to the community. Uh, This was, you know, an isolated incident and did believe that he was capable of showing up to, you know, his, his trial and as well as not harming anybody else. So there's going to be a lot of opinions on this. I won't be shocked. I am going to ask, I would love to hear, what you guys think uh, you can, you know, comment on it under the episode after it's posted, after you listen, because this is difficult. You know, on one hand, you have a what sounds to be straight male uh, meeting with somebody who he connects with on Tinder. And once finding out their true identity after one meeting, which I did read a a councilman in Roanoke uh, with the last name Cobb, who is part of the LGBTQ community. He said that what caught his attention was that they, well, they already met once, but they did meet for oral sex. So that doesn't require Smith's clothing to be off, you know, and depending on how Smith had done himself up to appear as though he was a woman, it, you know, I, I'm not saying that everybody would fall for that, but, I don't I don't know what he, what he looked like. So, but obviously E2 did fall for it because oral sex what did happen on April 10th. 
you know, and fast forward to Memorial Day and they hook up again. And this time, you know, I, I, it didn't say how far they had gone before he realized. I don't know if he showed up at the apartment and Smith was dressed as normal and just told him that he was Angie. None of that's come out, and I'm sure it won't until trial. Maybe the preliminary hearing. Actually, I would bet it will come out of the preliminary hearing because they're gonna they're gonna throw everything on the table to make sure these charges stick. So, so you have that on one hand, and, and on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, a person who. From but so this is where I'm kind of torn on it, I guess, because I hadn't heard of Smith being trans in any other instances, as far as his character witnesses, I sh- I'll call them, but they would be the people who were interviewed, you know, former coworkers who were all interviewed during this initial incident when uh, when it first came out, which you know we talked about last week where. People talked about his storytelling and and all of that. Nobody had ever mentioned any uh, trans side of him. So is this something that he was doing secretly? Uh, how many other people? And that was another thing that people mentioned uh, in, in the reactions I was reading is how many other people has he done this to who didn't react the way that he too did? you know, maybe left without the violence, which would have been probably the reasonable way to do it. However, that's not what took place here. So, you know, like I said, then you have Rosenthal, uh, the assistant professor at Roanoke, who's saying trans people don't owe anyone disclosure. Do they or don't they? I would love to hear everybody's opinions on that. This is a, you know, a touchy subject in, in the year 2021 where we're at now with uh, all the movements and everything like that. So curious to hear what everybody thinks on that. But we're going to follow this, like I said, you know, for the duration as far as as far as we can uh, till the end. But like I said, uh, July 23rd, I don't think that court date we're going to hear anything about it. I think that's for the traffic violations. Maybe we will find out if it took place prior to or after the killing again. A kid with a perfectly clean record, E2, I could see the traffic violations having took place after the meeting because he was in a panic because of what he just did. It's very possible. So, again, we'll uh, revisit this case at a later date. I did have some other stuff I wanted to get to, but I'm going to wait until next week. Brett Reed, uh, son of Andy Reed, did plead not guilty to his DUI charges that left a child in critical condition. Uh, there was another incident where a soccer analyst actually threatened to choke his co-host, who's a female. So that's probably going to be a good one. I'm going to look into more. We'll get to those next week, barring anything absolutely insane happening this week. So again, this edition of The Things That Sting is brought to you by Jones Pest Control. Ant spiders, bees, or mice don't think twice. Call Jones Pest Control at 814 814- Two three zero nine five four eight. That's eight one four two three zero nine five four eight. We'll take a break. We're going to be back with the fan rant. Stick around. Hi. 
This is Ryan Klein, the host of the new pop culture podcast, Me, Myself, and Ryan. You can find me on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several other platforms. Special guests, breakaway shows, bonus episodes, cold beers, and a whole lot more. So what are you guys and gals waiting for? Subscribe now to the Me, Myself, and Rye podcast on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your shows and start listening today. My High, Joe's very own world of sports. All right, here we are. Second edition of the Fan Rant. We're covering the AFC East this week. Uh, Per Facebook voting, it looks like Phil with the Washington football team wins the NFC East Fan Rant. So an idea was brought to me by Michael Honorati about grouping the winners and doing something later on seed it make it a playoff i like it i think we're gonna try that so facebook voting is important make sure you're getting your votes in there so phil congratulations washington football team you move on uh you are gonna get a koozie like i said and we are gonna plan something for the future with that uh to seed it and maybe as the season goes we'll we'll kind of dive into that so again, like I said, make sure you're getting your votes out uh, once the episode's posted. I give it a couple days, and then I will put up the voting post for everybody to vote on that one, so that so that the votes aren't mixed on a bunch of different posts, and that you know confuses the hell out of me. So the AFC East we're covering today. Let's get it started. Kicking us off to start off the AFC East now. Listeners, beware. I am holding my bias as much as I possibly can. But with me is Michael Boyd on the Beehive Hotline. He's going to be representing the one and only Buffalo Bills. Michael, you have three minutes. Go ahead and uh, convince me and the listeners why the Buffalo Bills could hoist the Lombardi Trophy in February. Let's do it. First off, thanks for having me on today, Joe. Uh, listen to a number of episodes. I really enjoyed them. Keep it up. Uh, and to be asked to, to, to come on and discuss our bills. Well, I don't, I don't take that lightly. So, so why is this team in Orchard Park? Why is this team out of the 716? Why is this team out of Buffalo, New York, home of the greatest of all time, not Jim Kelly, but close, the chicken wing, going to host the Lombardi in 2022? Well, let me count the ways. I'm not going to sit here and spout stats and facts. It's boring. It doesn't prove anything. And until the pads are strapped on and we start counting wins and losses, it means nothing. I'm not going to bring up how Josh Allen threw 4,600 yards and had 45 touchdowns with a 69% completion percentage and a passer rating of 107.2 last year, or the fact that he can throw a football from Buffalo to Inglewood, California, site of this year's Super Bowl. And as Tupac said, Inglewood's always up to no good. 
well, wait until the mafia rolls into town with circled wagons of plastic tables on fire. I'm not going to bring up Stephon Diggs leading the league. I'll say that again. Leading the league in receptions and yards last year. Numbers and stats are great, but they don't tell the whole story. And they can be subject to manipulation, false narratives, and downright subterfuge. You want to know why the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl in 2022? Let's talk intangibles. Let's talk character. Let's talk culture. Three words. Trust the process. Let's go back to early 2017. The Bills are coming off another lackluster season under perennial disappointment Rex Ryan, who was relieved of his coaching duties to hire a no-name former national prep wrestling champion and collegiate football player out of William & Mary, Coach Sean McDermott. Four months later, salary cap wizard and current general manager extraordinaire Brandon Bean is hired to form the super duo of who Mafia members lovingly refer to as McBean. We went from a coach who didn't know what details were to one who says no detail is too small. Trust the process. Humble and hungry. These are the mantras that this team, this city, this region lives by. We went from 17 years of looking from the outside in on the playoffs to now fearing no team and busting through the gates of hell next to number 17, future MVP, future Super Bowl MVP, and all-around high-character guy Josh Allen leading us to the promised land. This isn't Cleveland. We had a flash-in-the-pan, one-year wonder led by some Johnny Manziel wannabe. A place where you can't drink a beer in the parking lot unless it's in a plastic cup because someone might see that it's beer. This isn't Pittsburgh where we're TikToking, and I don't even know what that means, but where we're TikToking on logos and then losing by 20. A place where fans are there to be seen and will disappear as soon as the team goes 7 and 10, which they're going to get used to. This is Buffalo. America's team wears red, white, and blue. This is wings and labats. This is hammerlock with ketchup and mustard. This is a full stadium at game one and a fuller stadium in December with 27 degrees and 32 inches of snow. This is 17 years of showing up no matter what to support this team, regardless of the record. Now it's showing up for number 17 and watching him, him and his band of brothers ball out. This is 15,000 showing up at the airport to welcome our boys back with the AFC East title. Show me another town that does that. Like Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, we're here and we're swinging. And when we do win that title, when this team does host that trophy and the parade is going through Lafayette Square, an entire region and Bill's Mafia all around the world will bask in the reflected glory that is our Buffalo Bills. And on that day... As Marv Levy once etched in stone, where else would you rather be than right here, right now? No bells. Well, Mike, I told you and I told the listeners that I was not going to be biased, but I agree with everything that you just said. Amen. Well, that's going to be a tough one to beat. But next on the Beehive Hotline, representing the Miami Dolphins, Brendo Labdello. Calling from Warren. Brendo, you got three minutes or less. Explain to listeners and myself why the Miami Dolphins could be Super Bowl champions this upcoming season. All right. Um, I'm going to start off with saying that, I mean, 
I think that they have a good chance of making it far in the playoffs. I don't know if they're Super Bowl contenders just yet. I don't like to try to jinx my team. I've been being a Miami Dolphins fan. It kind of sucks. I mean, they've had a tough road at it for my, most of my lifetime. But anyways, I think they'll be pretty decent. Uh, I think they have a good shot. If not this year, definitely next year. They built very well with the draft, with the draft picks they've had. Uh, Larry McTunzel did the Miami Dolphins very, very well. Uh, I think a lot of people think that Tua sucks, which is kind of ridiculous in my eyes because, I mean, yes, he's underperformed, but there's not too many quarterbacks that did really well their freshman year in professional football. I mean, he had no mini camp because of COVID, which killed would kill any quarterback. The hip surgery came from literally ruined Bo Jackson's career. Now I know technology and medicine has gone a long way, but I mean, that's got to hinder him at some point. And now that he has a full camp, I think he's going to be a completely different quarterback. And now that honestly, as much as I love Fitzpatrick, I'm glad he's gone because I mean, Tua had to have that in the back of his mind the whole time that if he makes one mistake, they're just going to bring in Fitzpatrick to close the game. I mean, he's a great quarterback. He's constantly under the microscope and could be replaced at any time. With that being said, I mean, it all depends on Tua, but being that they did so well in the offseason and drafted well, uh, bringing in Waddle is huge. I mean, people are comparing him to Tyree Kill, but I don't see that comparison so much. But even being in the same realm of conversation has to be a good thing looking forward. Now, I know coming from college to NFL, it's a total... I mean, you never know what you're going to get, but it has to be a good start. Um, bringing in Will Fuller, another speedy receiver, is great. I think that it'll help open up uh, more for Devontae Parker, finally. He's been kind of a dud in my eyes. Um, but I think those two should be able to open up more and more. And, of course, the Kiseki, who's been coming on as, as of late. I think they have a good – their offense is really starting to go. Uh, running back situation – is still kind of sketchy, but I mean, running backs in the NFL are like a dime a dozen. It's not like college football. I mean, one year they're good, one year they're not. It's kind of hard to tell anymore. Um, defensively, they played really well last year. Uh, I don't think, as long as they live up to they did last year, they should do very well. I think they'll make the playoffs. Um, I think they'll Probably win a couple games. I mean, they have a tough competition with Buffalo and Kansas City. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But as for now, I have high hopes for the Miami Dolphins. And like I said, if not this year, I think next year will definitely be a Super Bowl contender. All right. I'm going to provide a little feedback on this one because two things. One, uh, I went through the misery with my team as well for a long time. So it's nice to have some sort of you know expectation at this point. I think we can both agree on that. Oh yeah. Secondly, I'm totally with you with the Fitzpatrick Tua thing. I've given Tua a tough time in the past, but I also, in the back of my own head, know that he wasn't in the best situation with, you know, training camp and Fitzy being coming in for you know closing games like uh, Flores had him doing a couple times. So I I'm with you. I think now he has time to learn the book. He's going to be comfortable changing plays, making you know calling audibles at the line when he sees something in the defense. So I agree with you with, with all those points. 
Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, I mean, I have high hope for high hopes for Tua, but it's one of those things where it's kind of like shooter get off the pot. I mean, he's really got to prove himself this year if he wants a job going forward, which yeah. I really, I really do believe he will. All right, well, there you have it. Brendan's explanation as to why the Dolphins will be hoisting the Lombardi come February. All right, third in line, NFL fan rant, AFC East, representing the New England Patriots. Hunter Geckel, Hunter, where are you calling from? Uh, good old Warren, BA. It's a great place, isn't it? Absolutely. All right, you have three minutes, Hunter. Convince me and the listeners why the New England Patriots will return to their Super Bowl glory. All right. Well, first of all, as long as Bill and Josh are in town, I think anything's possible. Uh, last year, you know, COVID kind of took a beating on some teams. A lot of players opted out. So uh, we got a bunch of players coming back from the COVID opt-out list. We got Marcus Cannon coming back offensive tackle. Uh, Patrick Tung, Chung, one of our better players in defense, Dante Hightower. Uh, we also did a, a lot of good signings and free agency, I feel like. You know, we signed a lot of good defensive players, Raekwon McMillan. Uh, we brought back Kyle Van Noy, uh, signed Matt Judon. Got another good cornerback in Jalen Mills. Did a lot of good things on the offense as well. Brought in Hunter Henry for tight end. Uh, signed Kendrick Bourne for wide receiver. Uh, Nelson Aguilar, another good wide receiver. And then uh, what surprised me was signing uh, Johnny Smith, another good tight end, kind of going back to our bully ball up on the line with two tight ends. And then we signed another good offensive tackle in Trent Brown. Uh, I really think the, the main reason we're going to go and, uh, and win it all is our quarterback. And I am not talking about Cam Newton. I am talking about the man, the new kid on the block, Mac Jones. He is going to be our savior out in Foxborough. And he is going to be the reason that we go all the way and hold it up again. All right. You heard it. So here we are, last but not least, Beehive Hotline representing the New York Jets, Drew Gray. Drew, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Warren PA. That's where everybody's calling from today. I'm still asking, though, just for the hell of it. So, Drew, you have three minutes the clock is starting. Tell me why and tell the listeners why the New York Jets can win the Super Bowl this coming season. Well, first off, the Jets made a lot, a lot of good changes within the last year. Uh, Joe Douglas was hired two years ago. Obviously, Adam Gates got fired because he's a nut and he sucked at his job. So now we bring in Robert Sala who I feel is going to be a really good coach. The players are, are really liking them. They're really reacting and they're working hard. They had a great draft this year. Uh, they got Zach Wilson, who I like to call the Mormon Messiah. I think he's going to bring this to the promised land. <laughs> and then they moved up in the draft in the first round and got Elijah Bear Tucker, who they're going to pair up with Makai Beckton on the left side, which I think is going to be really great for the run game. Uh, and then in the second round, they got Elijah Moore, who is a little guy, he's a small slot receiver, 5'8", runs like a 4'3'7". But from everything I've been seeing, he uh, he's a great all-around player, and I think he's really going to help the passing game. And then they, they bring in Mike LaFleur as their offensive coordinator, and he's going to run that Shanahan, that 
West Coast offense. And I, I think that'll be good for Wilson. That's what he ran in college. But I think they're going to need a little help. Like, they were in the bottom of the AFC East last year. So, you know, like, Josh Allen could get COVID. Two is hip to blow out. Uh, Belichick, you know, him and his weird mullet loving son, they could get busted in, like, some uh, trailer park meth ring or something. You know, they're going to need some help to get out of the basement. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's pieces there. C.J. Mosley's coming back. Uh you got Quentin Williams. They start signed Carl Lewis. I, th- I think if things go right and they start off good this year and Zach Wilson gets a chance to, to grow and develop, they could really make a run at this thing. All right. Well, there you have it. Cases were made. Cases were definitely made. That is a division that was close to putting two teams in the playoffs last year with the Bills and the Dolphins, so... Anything that happens, a fresh season, there's 17 games. Make sure you get on the Facebook page and vote come middle of the week after this episode is launched. we got to have a winner. Next week will be the NFC North, I'm pretty sure. I want to do a quick apology for the echoing in the uh, call with Drew hosting the Jets. It was me echoing, not him. He sounded great. I sounded terrible. I'm not perfect at this yet, but I'm figuring it out. Mistakes were made, but we got through it. So that wraps up the fan rant for week two AFC East. We got two divisions down, six to go. So keep the calls coming. Keep the votes coming. We will wrap up my hive now, and I'm going to take a short break. We will be back with the closing segment. Stick around. That wraps up this episode of the Beehive Sports Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Quick thanks to the sponsors, Jones Pest Control, D9and10sports.com, and the Me, Myself, and Ride Podcast. Appreciate all of you for your contributions. Also want to thank Mike Boyd, Brendan Lobdell, Hunter Geckel, and Drew Gray. Fantastic job on the fan rant. I'm loving doing this segment. Uh, you guys are great. Scheduling can be tough. I appreciate everybody bearing with me and figuring out a time they can take a few minutes to get that recording done. You guys are great. Next week, NFC North, uh, hopefully featuring Ramblin' Matt Ramage. If you're not familiar, he has about 300 or so thousand uh, followers on Facebook, YouTube. Uh, he's a Packers guy. Check him out if you haven't heard him. He's hilarious. And, uh, he, he puts out a lot of pretty good content, so that'll be it. We'll see you next week. Everybody be safe. <laughs>